The Day the Earth Blew Up and Bye Bye Bunny are now without a home, and you wanted me to talk about it, so of course you realize this means podcast. Clearly, it's a terrible thing being done to these creators across the board, and that needs attention, so that's the real reason why I'm talking about this. But yes, I also wanted to, you know, be a bit presumptuous, because I think I know my audience, and... You know, this was a slight attempt at breaking the fourth wall early on, so cut me some slack. The show hasn't even started yet. Oh, here's the intro music. Are you ready, eager young space cadet? Meep, meep. I Hello and welcome to Of Course You Realize This Means Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Graves, and with me today, it is my pleasure to bring on friend and comedian, Rotten Tomatoes correspondent, and just overall funny guy, Mark Ellis, to the show. Thank you, Mark, for coming on, and how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jonathan. It's such a pleasure to be on the show with you anyway. And then when I found out some of the topics we were going to get into today, I was like, oh, this is this is just manna from from the gods above because it's in my wheelhouse. But it's stuff that I necessarily haven't gotten to talk at length about. At least it's been a long time. And so I want to get into some comedies. I want to get into some animation and some live action. Uh, some of the news I think is really interesting this week. So this is just, I lucked out with getting to do your show, my man. I can't wait to get into all of the examples of breaking the fourth wall and just having fun with it. There are so many classics. Obviously, Mel Brooks is a name that comes to mind when you say breaking the fourth wall. Like His comedy stylings are definitely up there. And yeah, it's going to be fun. But before we get to the fun, we got to touch on some news, which just dropped today. And that is David Zaslav continues to axe projects and just make it difficult for creators over at HBO Max to really like have a platform for their stuff and it really sucks for animation in particular and some of the new animated projects that are now without a home that doesn't mean they're not going to be made let me just make that clear it's still in production but it doesn't have a home because it's not going to have hbo max to go to these include the Matt Reeves, J.J. Abrams, Batman series, Caped Crusader, that was going to be a continuation of Batman the Animated Series from the 90s, which everybody loves. Again, presumptuous. The animated film around Damian Wayne called Merry Little Batman. That is a bummer because that was like, you know, Home Alone meets Batman. Like, I should have came up with that idea. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like the Wet Bandits fit so well in the rogues gallery of Gotham City anyway. <laughs> so it would have been the perfect marriage. And I actually, in, in a recent episode of uh, my show on Rotten Tomatoes versus, I compared a couple of the Batman villains to the Wet Bandits because the Wet Bandits, they may not have the most brain cells of any villain ever, sure. but they were at least smart enough to realize that every great bad guy needs a calling card. And so I wanted to see which Batman villain had the best calling card because you have like Joker, obviously, with the the playing cards. You have Riddler who loves leaving question marks. And like I know you and I are around the same age. And so say we want about the movie Batman Forever. But the logo that was the Riddler question mark over the bat signal, that was 
I put that on a par with the bleeding Superman logo from the 90s. Okay. It, it was dark for our heroes in the 90s, it kids. Was. When we were reading comic books, <laughs> Batman's getting his back broken and Superman's dying. It was a tough time to be a kid looking up to heroes. It truly was. I, I never made that connection, but you're so right. Like having a calling card is such a... a uh, token of being a Batman villain and the wet bandits do that every house they hit. That is such a <laughs> astute observation. Yeah, and they, they call themselves the wet bandits because they flood the houses and there seems to be a thing with villains and wasting water. Like if you saw the Batman, we got a ton of flooding. We always want to poison the water supply yeah. or do something with the weather or in the wet bandits case, just you run your water bill up. And so it's, uh, I think that that, that that is something that I was really looking forward to. And I know we'll get into more about Cape Crusader, but, but that's another huge bummer for me just as a kid growing up and just watching Batman the animated series and realizing that was the first time that I realized hey these cartoons even though I'm a kid watching this cartoons are not just for kids because this is something that I'm sure I'll be enjoying when I'm an adult and that came to pass yeah absolutely and same here uh growing up with Batman the animated series was like my joy of after school watching and you know it really induct indoctrinated me into being the Batman fan I am today because it represented the villain so well in that show, but it also represented Bruce Wayne. And like, you got to see the many aspects of Bruce Wayne, which you didn't get to see in the movies necessarily. Yeah. And you know, the, the obviously the, the name power that you have with the JJ Abrams or a Matt Reeves, but having Bruce Tim back for that yeah. show was the, was the bigger selling point for me just because he was one of the geniuses behind Batman, the animated series. And I love how you touched on, what that did for the villains and putting them at the forefront. I mean, it was the it was that show, not any of the Batman movies to that point, that made me realize this relationship between Joker and Batman goes much deeper than just, hey, I'm the good guy and I'm trying to stop the bad guy. Joker realized very early on that he needed Batman. And so for me, as a kid growing up and wanting to do something in the world of creating entertainment you you realize that this is a lot more than just x and y yeah. it, it's not just oil and water there's reasonings behind their their methodology and it and then on top of that you know you find out wait a minute mark hamill is doing this, <laughs> this is like, it's just like there's just it, it was the gift that kept on giving that and the x-men animated series from the 90s i put those two properties up there really against any comic book movie i've ever seen absolutely yeah totally agree and that's another thing you just re reminded me of that we're going to miss out on is this project would have had amazing voice actors. Like we could have had a modern take on all of these characters once again. We will, Jonathan. We will. This project isn't dead. I know Andrea Romano has retired. She was the voice acting coordinator and like she cast a lot of those voices. Um, but we, we still have some really strong heavy hitters in the industry. And I'm sure we could have had a really nice roster of voices for these. Now, I don't know if that series is going to be picked up anywhere. Because, like, how does Batman go to another streaming service? Like, that is one of my main questions here. But I, I may have an answer for Looney Tunes. So we'll get there. Okay, well... <laughs> Good. Well, we'll get to the silver lining. I, I think that what what recent um, history has taught us, if anything, is that it, it can be tricky getting a a name or a property or a franchise that is so synonymous like Batman is with Warner Brothers. But mm -hmm. it's improbable, but it's not impossible because you, you even look back to 
the deal that Sony and Marvel were able to strike and right. and getting Spider-Man into the MCU. So if we if we can get something like that, and really that that was a, a miracle that happened twice, right? Yeah. When it came back for contract renegotiations too. So there's always a chance. I would not um, lose all hope for Cape Crusader being in our naked steaming eyeballs sometime soon. <laughs> I hope you're right. Running down the list a bit more, we have Amazing World of Gumball, the movie. A lot of people are looking forward to that. But my little asterisk there is that is a Hanna-Barbera property. So that would be packaged with Flintstones and Yogi Bear and anybody else that is associated with Hanna-Barbera. If that were to move off of HBO Max onto something else, that would go with it. And then we had the Urkel movie. (laughs) This is an animated project uh, getting Jaleel White back as Urkel. And, you know, I, I love Family Matters and I would have really liked to see that movie. Oh, I'm I mean, <laughs> so you, you, I'm kind of bummed. You about had that me too. at the return of Urkel because as, as some Family Matters fans knows, he <laughs> provided his own voice for a Scooby Doo run a few years ago. But to see him back as an adult, as Steve Urkel. Maybe we'd get a Stefan Urkel cameo in there. Maybe we could finally uh, get through this whole, maybe Carl Winslow and Sergeant Al Powell from Die Hard are the same person and we can just tie (laughs) everything together. It's a, what, what better Christmas gift to give us than not only Urkel back, but also the greatest Christmas movie of all time, Die Hard officially becoming family matters. Canon. I mean, (laughs) this was just lining up to be such a great season of giving Jonathan. It truly is. I think Mark got a little excited about the prospect of it being a live action project, but it is still animated and it was going to be on HBO Max as a new movie called Did I Do That to the Holidays? A Steve Urkel Story. And while I am still eager to watch this thing wherever it drops, because it's still, again, in production, we just don't have a home for it, I don't think it will answer all these questions that Mark has and once answered as I think we all do. We all want these answers, but we'll have to wait and find out. And again, I'm sorry, Mark, it won't be live action. We'll have to wait even longer for that. But holding out hope that we do see animated Urkel in his own movie for the holidays. And, you know, if only we could have a for sure plan here. You know, this goes back to David Zaslav, who we talked about last podcast, of, you know, him kind of restructuring everything. And we, the, the big caveat here is, is all of this leaving HBO Max so it can return to the new HBO Max slash Discovery platform that we haven't heard the name of yet? And is that why they're doing this? Or are they just upsetting fans just because they're evil? The thoughts and views of the podcaster are his own and in no way associated with Warner Brothers or any other Warner Brothers affiliate. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's it goes back to the Batman villain thing. Is like, is, is there a is there a monetary goal behind your madness, or is it just some men want to watch the world burn? Exactly. I, I really hope that it's the former and not the latter. But it, it does seem like that for the moment. That look, we're not in the boardroom, we're not in the highest halls where these meetings are happening, these negotiations and right. these postulations are taking place. And so you just hope that at some point. I, I think I think what goes through fans' minds during a period like this is you get reminded that while it's art and we all love 
things to feel like they're made for us because creators love to do it. It's also a business and it does come down to dollars and cents. And we don't always want to see that wizard behind the curtain. And so hopefully we can just get everything back to square and we can just start loving these shows because we love them and not worrying about what the bean counters are coming up with. Absolutely. And, you know, again, we're not there. We're not in those boardrooms. We're not in those meetings. So we'll just have to wait and find out. Uh, but the the big one everyone wants to know about, or the two big ones, are the Looney Tune projects. Uh, one is The Day the Earth Blew Up. It's a Looney Tunes movie by the same creative team behind Looney Tunes cartoons, headed by Pete Browngard. And this is penned by Kevin Costello, who wrote Briggsy Bear recently. Uh, that was an indie film that came out a couple years ago. And Kevin recently took to Twitter to say that he was just overjoyed with how the film was looking. And again, it's still in production. It just doesn't have a home. But everything is coming together well for it. And it stars Daffy and Porky as they become unlikely heroes when their antics at a local bubblegum factory uncover a secret alien mind-controlled plot. Against all odds, the two grow determined to save their town and the world. So that sounds delightful. And I hope we get to see it. I just don't know where. (laughs) Mark, you just heard that synopsis. What do you think? I feel like it's the animated Looney Tunes version of an Edgar Wright film because if oh, you have yeah. Daffy and Porky you you can see that it's not too tough to connect the dots between them and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost and then when you have a plot that is like hey there's aliens and there's mind control totally. I, it, it's like the world's end yeah. but that's about a bar crawl and so how do you do a bar crawl for all fa- for families of all ages it's at a bubblegum factory. And so <laughs> you, know, you, just, you just think about Daffy and Porky working together with those two great, you know, we all have a little bit of Porky Pig in us. And uh, and because you're just trying to pronounce a word, you're just trying to, to land, to stick the landing in a sentence and you can't do it. So you just pick a different word to close with. And we all have that, whether we want to admit it or not, especially driving in the traffic in Southern California, we all have that quick rise to anger sometimes like Daffy. And, you know, I if if we get this off the ground, then it gives more hope to a future where we could have this be successful, meaning we get more duck dodgers in the 24th and a half century, yes. which is what everybody wants. Everybody wants that. Amen. <laughs> and if HBO Max isn't going to have it, I will have it streaming on all days, all my social media, just endless <laughs> such a great uh short and animated series which recently had an anniversary it debuted 19 years ago this week the other project that we know is coming but we don't know when where even if it's theatrical or not we are unsure but bye bye bunny a looney tunes musical and the first musical for looney tunes as a franchise which is just bonkers to me that it took this long is still in the works uh it is a wonderful screenplay written by ariel dumas and she just so happens to share the same middle name as daffy duck what are the odds also she's a huge looney tunes fan and um it has award-winning composers around the music so we're gonna get this really operatic bugs bunny musical centered musical about him wanting to leave the stage Uh, because he's been doing it for so long and Daffy Duck wants to finally have the spotlight except he's kidnapped by an obsessive fan and then Bugs has to go save him and it's a whole adventure all of the Looney Tunes are going to be in it I think that's going to be wonderful will it 
see the light of day in a theater. I don't know, but I hope that one day we actually get it again in front of our naked eyeballs for us to enjoy and uh, and just, you know, reminisce about how great these characters are and how much music plays a part of that. Yeah, this felt very Muppety in its premise. And I mean that in the best way possible. I, I can see the Muppets doing the same sort of thing where one of them drops out. So the other one realizes it's their turn to be a star. One might think of like Miss Piggy dropping out. And so then I don't know, uh, the, the, the chef has to step in and, and lead the musical. And with this, I mean, who better than Bugs saying, I just want to live like a normal rabbit for once and do all the things that rabbits are. Let's face it, famous for doing. And then you have Daffy, who wants to step up, always feels like the second fiddle, always, always. wants the limelight. He, he's a little like Gonzo in that way. He or he, he's sort of like a hybrid of Gonzo. And he's got a little bit of Fozzie, too, because Fozzie just wants an audience. And I think this is a perfect premise for a Looney Tunes situation. And I also love hearing that the, the team behind it is if you're the head writer on the Colbert show, then you already have me hooked. But yeah. uh, Ariel uh, Dumas, she also just the fact that she's a huge Looney Tunes fan is what sells me on it, because I'm not one of these people that thinks that in order to come into a property, let's say an Indiana Jones or even a Star Wars, I don't think that you had to grow up loving these things. I think some properties that works for others. I sometimes appreciate when an artist who didn't grow up ingratiated in this world comes in and puts a fresh perspective on it. But with Looney Tunes, there's such a a lore. There's such a mystique. There's there's such that you either nailed it or it just feels off. And I want totally. my Looney Tunes creators to have grown up like really most of us did, let's be honest, and have their sense of humor shaped by Looney Tunes, because that's that's the key that I don't think Looney Tunes gets enough credit for. It was very entertaining for us as kids and our parents could sit us in front of the TV and they could go off for hours. We wouldn't even know it because we're just so enthralled. But Looney Tunes, more than any other single comedy entity, is responsible for shaping our sense of humors as an adult. There's been tons of great movies and all different genres of comedy, wonderful comedians, sketch shows. Nothing hit us all at an impressionable age the same way that Looney Tunes did. And so to see that legacy continue to be carried on by curators who care about it is vital to me. I feel the same way. And you couldn't have said it better, better than I could have. So like, thank you for saying all that. And I totally agree. <laughs> I, I really hope that the sensibilities that are behind the script and the, the team making this film just knows that there's a lot of people out there that want to see this type of film with these characters because a, it's never been done before. And B that is where they are at their funniest. Like that's where they're in their element with a musical score, with dialogue, with a, um, a really strong lyrical sensibility behind them. I think that is a really strong part of Looney Tunes as a whole. I mean, it was called Merry Melodies for a reason. <laughs> 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 and you know the the best merry melody to me is, is always going to be it, it's ironic and it because it's not starring any one of the main principles that you always associate with looney tunes but that's that's the genius that you have all these wonderful characters but you could plug anybody in to that world and and get a laugh and so it's the singing frog just just <laughs> has me on the floor 
every time. But then I also think about times when the Looney Tunes would do stuff like what we're going to talk about with Break the Fourth Wall. And you don't even know it's happening to you as a kid. You don't even realize that you're learning about comedy and all the different ways to get a laugh out of somebody. They're teaching you. And it's you're in comedy school. All these kids from all these generations, including us, we had no idea that we were actually at school when we're watching Looney Tunes. If we had known it, we wouldn't have wanted to watch it. We were actually learning more watching Looney Tunes than we ever did in actual school. And I will go to my grave saying that. (laughs) I would concur with that sentiment (laughs) entirely. That is a perfect transition. So we're going to be talking about one of the aspects that made Looney Tunes comedy so great. And it is right now on display in She-Hulk, which just aired on Disney+. And that is not a tie-in whatsoever. That is just an observation that I was like, (laughs) oh my gosh, like that's going to happen in the show. So I get to talk about it in my show. (laughs) So Breaking the Fourth Wall is as old as the Greek comedies and tragedies of those times where playwrights like... No one's going to know who playwrights of the 1600s are. Aristophanes. What did I say? And Shakespeare. Well, yeah, Shakespeare. They would have these plays where a character would turn to the audience and literally tell them how they're feeling, what is happening. And it is that recognition of the audience, that awareness, that is a fourth wall break. And whenever that happens in media, it can be used to really comedic effects as Chuck Jones, Chris Freeling, as everybody over at Termite Terrace taught us when we were kids. You have a wonderful, incredibly iconic short called Duck Amuck. Stand back, musketeers! They shall sample my blade! Touche! <clears throat> musketeers? Hmm? My guard? My blade? Hey, psst! Whoever's in charge here? The scenery! Where's the scenery? In this short, Daffy is on display, who is thinking he's going to be in the next, you know, Three Musketeers short. And he's, you know, out there in full garb, ready to battle. And all of a sudden, the background disappears. And he doesn't know where he is. And that's when he turns to the animator and goes, what's what's going on? (laughs) He acknowledges (laughs) that he's in a cartoon. And it's that acknowledgement that elevates this short to a whole new degree and takes it to a place that we never thought imaginable while watching a cartoon. It is indelible to the franchise, to just having, you know, this be a part of the lexicon of Looney Tunes. And it's it's a graceful way of representing the fourth wall break that never gets old. So, Mark, you just watched Duck and Muck. What did you? What, what was your takeaway as an adult from watching this short? And what was there something you uh, missed as a kid? Well, I, I have one surface level comment, and then one that's a little deeper that I might have missed when I was a child. But okay. the overarching sentiment, my takeaway from rewatching some of this stuff, it's still hilarious. Yeah. I mean, it still plays. It still is just as funny as it was when it was released. And and then you start thinking about it with my adult brain that's a little a little more you know worldly than I was when I was a kid, just a little bit. <laughs> and it's it's almost ironic that the fact that they're breaking the fourth wall and so it's it's letting us know that hey there's animators and that you know they're just drawing my stuff. 
ironically, that makes Daffy or when it happens to Bugs more relatable and more 3D. And it makes it feel like we know them even better because it's not just a play. It's actually now you're in their real life because now it's almost like they have a backstory. They're just actors showing up to do a job that day. Right. And then they're going to go do something else with the rest of their life. Like this isn't the end all be all for them in these adventures. They're just showing up and clocking in like we're all going to do when we grow up. And so I think in a weird way, it actually made them feel more real, even though they were calling out the very animators that were drawing them. Absolutely. Yeah. I think Bugs actually holds a picket sign at one point where he's like, will not work. <laughs> and like, he's going to go on strike. And, you know, he's like against that. But, you know, like it was drawn into his hand. So he's reacting to it. But absolutely, it does make them more human in that way. And Chuck Jones was quoted as saying, you know, he always wanted to be Bugs, but he woke up in the morning and looked in the mirror and he saw Daffy. <laughs> Thanks for the sour persimmons, cousin. That was just, you know, who we are as humans. Like, that is who we are. Um, but we strive to be better. We strive to to want these things and have really strong morals and ideals and, and everything that, uh, that Bugs represents. But having, you know, having the rug pulled out from under you, which happens in Duck and Muck while Bugs is animating Daffy, and then in... Uh, Rabbit's Rampage in 1955, it was revealed that Elmer Fudd is animating bugs to get get at him. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's just a really fun structure to a cartoon that we had never seen before. And I thought, yes, it it is hilarious still. Um, But I love how it puts these characters in such a vulnerable state that they have to come up with new ways to get out of them because they get put into some serious, seriously dangerous situations for, you know, their (laughs) livelihood. Bugs is put on railroad tracks. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it it, it was getting intense there and it it was such an elevation to the entire genre of storytelling through animation because up to that point, there had obviously been jokes in your classic Disney movies and you had the Steamboat Willie sort of changing the game. But when you have something like this, a concept like this introduced, the sky really becomes the limit as far as the types of stories that you can tell with animated characters. And that paves the way for what we have today, because you can put on any animated show. You can put on Simpsons, Family Guy, South Park, and they all are now doing things with animation that you can't get away with with live action. So as forever animation, even though it's 2D, it it felt like it was stifled and it, and it felt like it was the inferior way to convey a message or to can to convey a story plot point that live action could do better. But now we're at a place, thanks to things like Looney Tunes and the breaking of the fourth wall, that animation is the playground where you can get away with so much more. The sandbox for what's acceptable is so much bigger than it is in live action in 2022. And that's can be directly traced back to Looney Tunes and the groundbreaking, no pun intended work that they did. I mean, they, they were breaking <laughs> all the ground, so they may as well knock down the fourth wall too, right? Might as well. And we mentioned earlier that Mel Brooks is one of the notable directors that used to do that. He literally broke down the walls in Blazing Saddles where he had other, you know, actors breaking walls to like come into the scene. And he, you know, he killed uh, 
background grips he like in his movies um with uh space balls he stopped <laughs> the space balls entire movie so that way they could watch space balls <laughs> yeah you have Everything got helmet really, asking yeah. if everybody if everybody's understanding what's <laughs> happening thus far <laughs> and in young frankenstein you just have that simple line the damn your eyes and then marty feldman points at the camera and he says too late <laughs> Aren't there any lights in this place? Two nasty-looking switches over here, but I'm not going to be the first. Damn your eyes! Too late. It's so interesting that you can do this in any section of your proverbial blockbuster video. You can break the fourth wall. You can do it with action films, drama, horror. But with comedy, I think the trick is... It's it's like when you're doing stand up, there's certain words like you can say the F word a couple times and it has maximum effect if you if you actually restrain yourself from using it more than that, because then when you do hit it, it's going to be harder. It's going to sell the joke more. And with breaking the fourth wall, you can't do it in every scene. But if you get away with just a quick look like you see it in spoof movies like an airplane, you see it in Top Secret, where the setup is Val Kilmer is quickly explaining the whole plot of the movie, what just happened to Lucy Goodridge. And then she says, I know it all sounds like some bad movie. And then they both (laughs) stop and they just kind of glance over at the camera and then go back (laughs) to each other. And I love when those jokes work and it works because it's unexpected. So when something's unexpected, we as the audience are not prepared for them breaking the fourth wall. And so anytime that we're that something unexpected happens, that presents an opportunity to hit us in the soft spot, so to speak. It's like when you're playing a 16 bit video game and you get to the boss at the end of the level. If you're trying to shoot a giant eye out, it's going to be blinking. And when it opens up, that's your window to shoot. That's your window to get a new style of joke at us. And you can't do it every scene, but when you do it, if you do it, if you're very conservative with when you play that card, it really can have an impact. I go back to 1978's Animal House where John Belushi is a peeping Tom and he looks back at the camera and he does his eyebrows, furrows his eyebrows like only he can. (laughs) And that just lets us in on the joke. Eric LaSalle does it in Coming to America where he's uh, given a proposition that he's going to feel very guilty about taking, but he just looks at the camera like, what do you want me to do? And it's it, when it's used like that, it's so effective. But, you know, as we're talking about a lot of other movies that I, I know you're a fan of, it can be used for more dramatic effect. It can be used as a narration device as well, like what we see with something like John Cusack and High Fidelity. Yeah, High Fidelity is a great example um, where he is narrating, but he's also, you know, talking to the audience about like his feelings, his emotions, like what he's actually going through internally. It's a really great window into a character that we wouldn't get through dialogue or otherwise. And another great example, and it kind of, blends both of those examples is another Val Kilmer movie, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, where Robert Downey (laughs) Jr. and Val Kilmer are both talking to the camera at the end of the film, you know, and they're like, tip the valet, you know, on your way out. You know, they, they have these little asides, if you will, and obviously the aside became a thing that that's how we got The Office and, you know, what we do in the shadows and all those wonderful comedies as well. Um, So, yeah, talking to the audience can be a way of really great insight into a character that we wouldn't get normally, but it also adds 
so many opportunities for comedic effect. And going back to Daffy, just his eye glances, like whenever his eyes just glaze over and he's like really out of his mind with what is happening to him. My, my favorite moment is when he asked for a close up because he's trying to work with the guy. He's trying to work with the animator. And he's like, give me a close-up, give me a close-up. And then it like zooms in on like all this black around him and it's like little square. And he's like, this is a close-up? <laughs> <laughs> a close-up. And then it goes to like an extreme close-up of his eyes. It's so good. It, it It's so good. And anytime a Looney Tune would, would just look at the camera with that sort of side-eye glance that you know that... It, characters like, like Jim from The Office owes them a huge debt of gratitude for <laughs> setting us up to be expecting a, just a, a wry look into the camera that can really elevate us. It can really get the biggest laugh of the scene because clearly there's some other crazier action happening on screen. But when the character just lets us know, can you believe I'm in this right now? It, it It's relatable. It makes us feel like we are there. It, it puts us more realistically in their shoes and what they're experiencing. That's what I loved about Wayne and Garth and their their use of it, because, you know, it felt like we were on this journey with them. And, you know, we weren't just participants like in an audience and like, you know, watching it. It felt like we were connected with them in, in a certain way, because, you know, there were some things where Garth would just glance at the camera and it would like key us in like on this moment happening in front of him. I think we took a wrong turn because we're outside now. Whoa! Whoa! Is this Alice's limo? No, it belongs to Frank Sharp, head of Sharp Records. Good friend of Alice's. Wow, that's like way bigger than a normal sized car. Well, it has to be. He drives everywhere, hates to fly. He's going across the country right now to look for new acts to sign to his label. Next stop is St. Louis, and he's gonna come back through Chicago on his way to Detroit. Thanks. You know, for a security guard, he had an awful lot of information, don't you think? Yeah, it's, it's just, if it's used well, it can really elevate the comedy and the world that they're building. And it, again, just, widens that range of comedy that you can play with. Uh, Fleabag also does a really great job of this. And that's a show where it is a heavy drama, but the levity comes from whenever she looks at the camera and she lets us in on what she's thinking. And, you know, it, it has a really great way to, you know, to suck out any like heavy thing that's going on for us to get back in and invested into the character. Yeah, I feel like both of those examples with Fleabag on television, then the Wayne's World films, they go back to Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where the character is doing their job of telling us what's going on in any given scene. Like, like they're sort of spelling it out for us, but they're also having a good time doing it. Incredible. One of the worst performances of my career, and they never doubted it for a second. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? And that's where the comedy comes from, is that you can tell what a blast Wayne and Garth are having trying to build this TV show. And with Ferris, just this is what he does best is fool around and play hooky. And 
another <laughs> another fun trick that Wayne's World does is making that, that they never focus too much on the fact that there is a camera there, but they'll claim it when they need to. And re, it, it helps them reassert their dominance that this is our movie, not Ed O'Neill's, who is working at Stan Makita's. And Ed O'Neill's stories to the camera in both Wayne's World 1 and 2 floor me. I'd never done a crazy thing in my life before that night. Why is it if a man kills another man in battle, it's called heroic? Yet if he kills a man in the heat of passion, it's called murder. Hello! What do you think you're doing? Only me and Garth get to talk to the camera. Come on. This is so dark, <laughs> so quick, and I am here for it. Ed O'Neill is just fantastic. National treasure all the way. Um, yes, but- yes. Much more than just Al Bundy, but also thank you for Married with Children. Yes. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, you can just trace all of this back to Looney Tunes because while Shakespeare and other movies or or I mean, specifically, Buster Keaton did this in his films. It felt like more of an accident, except when it wasn't. So there's actually a film called One Week about a couple who move in together. And there's a moment where the uh, newlywed wife is in the bathtub and she drops the soap and she goes to reach out for it and then looks up at the camera before like fully exposing her entire body to the audience. And then the cameraman's hand comes around the side of the camera and then covers up the lens so she can like retrieve the soap. I think that is one of the best examples of using this technique to elevate the film that they're in. And like, you know, you then care about the characters even more if that happens. And then obviously yeah, on the yeah. other side of the spectrum, you have Psycho. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yes you you, yeah, yeah. As far as movies where uh, where bathing is prominent to the plot. Uh, <laughs> with, uh, with with one week, it was almost like a uh, like an early camera trick and special effects, too. And so it's mm-hmm. it's doing a lot for cinema back then. And if you also just go back and watch anything that Buster Keaton did on, on another note, there, there is some fourth wall breaking and, and Charlie Chaplin would give looks into the camera too. If you watch Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, it you're, I'm astounded at just how funny they are yeah. at how perfectly timed every gag is and how physical they can be, but they can also just kill you with one look or one, one, one word, I guess, with the silent movie era. And I mean, I don't want to compare eras too much because it's really tough, but I, there, there's a lot of funny people now. There, there ain't nobody <laughs> like Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. Absolutely. I am a huge fan of Buster Keaton. And, you know, growing up with Looney Tunes, there's a lot of similarities between silent film acting and animation. And you can obviously draw those lines and connect those dots on your own time. But the asides and like the the fourth wall breaks I think are very apparent in both but when Bugs Bunny does it you feel it even more so because you have gone through all of these other cartoons where he's put through the ringer and then he's had to have revenge on the guy doing terrible things and not letting him sing you know in his own yard (laughs) and you know like you feel for the guy and to have him put in this situation I think it just elevates it even more so using this technique to the nth degree uh i think is always effective but it's never more effective than when you watch it in the looney tunes cartoon me what's up doc oh you huh 
Well, if you're the one who's gonna draw this picture, then count me out. Capital O, capital U, capital T. Out. So goodbye to you and farewell to thee. Yeah, and 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 with Bugs, we're we're more invested in him just because he is he's the leader. He always felt like the the Looney Tune Prime. He's the Alpha Looney Tune, and so whereas with Duck and Muck, you, you're also you're, you're more than anything laughing at Daffy's misfortune and at his misgivings. And I mean, still to this day, when when I see the the sketch where Daffy is given different animal noises than what a duck sounds like where you have a monkey and you have an elephant and all these things it just as kids nothing made oh, us laugh my harder wise guy where am i <laughs> The link between the Looney Tunes fourth wall breaking and doing it in a live action format, whether it's on stage or it's on television or in a movie, I think that the connective tissue there is Monty Python and Monty Python and and the Holy Grail. But but a lot of Monty Python sketches as well. So heavily relied on animation for scenes and for transitions. And so to see the animator literally pass away. In a Monty Python movie where they're drawing it, it's like, oh, that's a little bit of Looney Tunes. That's a little bit of Mel Brooks. This is just everything that we love about spoof and about having fun with the audience in many different ways. As the horrendous Black Beast lunged forward, escape for Arthur and his knights seemed hopeless. When suddenly, the animator suffered a fatal heart attack. The cartoon peril was no more. The quest for the Holy Grail could continue. That entire troupe is is such a, a boon for comedy, but also for just entertainment as a whole. Terry Gilliam is an incredible filmmaker, and the fact that he came from that and then went on to do Brazil and all these other great films is just a testament to the talent that came out of that entire group of guys. Um, the, but yeah, the artistry of that, having an animator pass away during a segment or having a guy in Life of Brian come up and show you the middle of the movie and like a screen comes <laughs> up and says, the middle of the movie, congratulations, you made it. <laughs> it's one of those things that when it's replicated, it feels a little inauthentic because it was done so well early on. Like, I don't think anything in Deadpool equals the the scope and like the the deepness that we got from a Monty Python uh comedy short or a um or a movie uh I think it it is on the tails of instead of you know having its own vehicle to uh to present that with um that's just my thought yeah, and Deadpool, there's always an a almost overwhelming sense of urgency, which I think works for that character when they are breaking the fourth wall because they have to tell us this information right now and do it in a in a quick witted comedic way. Yeah. But Monty Python can come at you from a variety of different ways with breaking the fourth wall. Like you said, it can even be with 
without words. It can be without characters. It could be opening credits. I mean, the opening credits of Monty Python and the Holy Grail are breaking the fourth wall <laughs> because when we see movie credits, it, it's just telling us who directed and who did what, but it's not talking to us. It's not speaking to us until it is with this ridiculous story that whoever is typing the opening credits is trying to convey to us about a moose biting someone's sister once upon a time. <laughs> and so we're invested in this. And then we have the, the, the people responsible for this have been sacked. And it's like they're already breaking the fourth wall before you meet King Arthur. Right. <laughs> it, it's just genius comedy. I, I, I feel like they either grew up with Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, or they, they had Looney Tunes as their as their guide. Or more likely, all of the above. There's no way that they didn't see the work of Chuck Jones and not, you know, be inspired by it. You know, but, but that just goes to show you how deep this well of comedy runs. And, and and Looney Tunes did not just inspire the future comedians and, and comedy makers in entertainment. You can point to some more serious examples that you and I were talking about before we went to air with a with a fight club or American Psycho. I mean, you can yeah. you can actually look trace both of those stories the ways that those stories are told back to Looney Tunes more easily with American Psycho because it is just so like wacky and over the top, but they're breaking the fourth wall and they're not necessarily comedies, not in the sense that we're used to. American Psycho is almost like a, a very incredibly dark satire, but it, you're not walking into that movie thinking you're going to have a barrel of laughs. Alan has mistaken me for the Marcus Halberstram. It seems logical because Marcus also works at PNP and in fact does the same exact thing I do. He also has a pension for Valentino's suits and Oliver Peoples' glasses. Marcus and I even go to the same barber, although I have a slightly better haircut. And with Fight Club, when me and, and my buddies in college, we all wanted to go see Fight Club, we thought we were just seeing a movie about a bunch of dudes that beat each other up. We had no idea what we were in for, but we didn't walk out of that movie saying that was so funny. We just walked out like that was such a head trip. And part of that is the fourth wall breaking. Yeah, you you have really strong, talented actors doing these you know segments where they're pointing out this the cigarette burns in film and you know <laughs> describing that to you as a viewer i mean like that is just next level storytelling like ha- like the only thing that does is bring you closer to these characters like that's the only thing it can do and it does it so well and you're also learning at the same time <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a way to make you care more about him. You, you wouldn't necessarily think that you're going to be rooting for a guy who's cut class nine times that semester. But <laughs> when he's the person who's talking to you, you, you like him. It gives the character a chance to put more of their personality on us. And with Ferris, he's just that that person that you're just instant you instantly like, regardless of whether his antics are going to get you in trouble. He's just so likable. Deadpool is, is such a funny character um space balls the the imperial contingent is so inept and their fourth wall breaks show us that pardon me sir i have an idea corporal get me the video cassette of space balls the movie yes sir how can there be a cassette of space balls the movie we're still in the middle of making it oh, that's true sir but there's been a new breakthrough in home video marketing there is yes instant cassettes they're out in stores before the movie is finished. Nah. Here it is, sir. Spaceballs. Good work, Corporal. Punch it up. That's much too early. Prepare to fast forward. We're preparing to fast forward. Fast forward. Fast forwarding, sir. 
movie. Now. You're looking at now, sir. Everything that happens now is happening now. What happened to then? We passed then. When? Just now. We're at now now. Go back to then. When? Now. Now? Now. I can't. Why? We missed it. When? Just now. When will then be now? Soon. And so it gives you a chance to give us more of who you are. We would know that John Cusack is somewhat of a, um, you know, <laughs> romantic journeyman, <laughs> but we wouldn't know it in the same way. We wouldn't feel as connected with his story, but he can talk to us and he can do his top five lists in the same way that we probably all made top five lists about our past and our exes in our heads. Which brings us to number one on the top five all time breakup list. Allison Ashmore. It would be nice to think that since I was 14, times have changed. Relationships have become more sophisticated. Females, less cruel. Skin's thicker. Instincts more developed. But there seems to be an element of that afternoon and everything that's happened to me since. All my romantic stories are a scrambled version of that first one. So it just, whatever the character has that is their signature trait it allows them to get deeper into that yeah and another great example about bringing in education is in annie hall when woody allen's character actually (laughs) brings over the guy who wrote the book to the guy that was explaining the book in the line and he's like no you're wrong and here's why and he just like leans into it and he tells him all these ways that he was like misinterpreting his writings. Well, you don't know anything about Marshall McLuhan's oh, really? work. Really? I happen to teach a class at Columbia called TV, Media and Culture. So I think that my insights into Mr. McLuhan will have a great deal of validity. Oh, do you? Yeah. Well, that's funny because I happen to have Mr. McLuhan right here. So, so yeah, just let me, let me, let me, come over here a second. Oh, Tell I, heard, him. I heard what you were saying. You, you know nothing of my work. You mean my whole fallacy is wrong. How you ever got to teach a course in anything is totally amazing. Boy, if life were only like this. It adds, again, a a sense of brevity to the situation, but it also brings us closer into getting to know this character, what kind of person he is, how he thinks, and, you know, all of those things. Because in your mind, you're like, oh, no, they're wrong, but I can't say that because I'll sound like a jerk if only the real guy was here to, like, (laughs) back me up. And so then in that yeah. situation, he's actually there. Yeah. And, and, and it's worked with, with Adam McKay sometimes as well, because yeah. it, it's a, it's a smart way to give us a lot of information and a lot of exposition in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. So with something like the big short, you, you have these celebrities that are just, it's Margot Robbie in a bathtub or it's Anthony Bourdain telling us how to make a stew. And it's just these very quick ways to catch us up to give us a crash course in econ 201 so that we can sort of follow along with what's going on and why this stuff matters to this particular tale and you can also have it just be the the going back to the ferris bueller method it's also the the coolest person in the room gets to do this and you see it on Saved by the Bell, where Zach Morris is the one that can break the fourth wall. He's the one that can talk to us. He's the one that can call timeout when he needs to and stop the action. Why? Because he's the coolest one in the room. When you watch Winning Time, which is also the done by Adam McKay, the story of the Los Angeles Lakers on HBO, Jerry Buss gets to break that fourth wall, and a couple other characters do, because they're in the driver's seat right now. Absolutely. Yeah. It's always the cool characters. I mean, I think Will Smith did it in Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. You know, they, they get these moments yeah. where they are 
the characters that you you care about the most, but also they're the coolest characters on scene. So like they actually have that power. It's it's like you know what what's the superpower you want? Oh, I want to be able to talk to like the the fourth person you know in the room, the person you don't see, that invisible person. I want to talk to them and tell them exactly <laughs> what I think is going on. It, you know, it, it is a really cool power to have. And again, it, it really makes you look at that character differently, but I think in a better light than you did before because you get to know what they're thinking. I mean, it's, it's like, um, it's not intrusive, but like it allows you into their inner innermost thoughts. And those are oftentimes really funny. If only we had like a microphone in our heads, you know, to project out what we were really thinking, I think it would uh, change the world drastically in a lot of ways. <laughs> But it would um, it would definitely make things a lot more funny. And it would put us ahead of the game, as it so often does in entertainment, where if Zach Morris is telling us something, then we know that we know this, but none of the other characters are aware of this yet. Right. And so if it's a real life superpower, then if that in if that ability, it's almost like you have your on-call therapist when you get to talk to the fourth wall, because <laughs> it's like, yeah, hey, I, I just need to hear me say this idea out loud so that I can hear it before anybody else in my actual story can get it. And so all of a sudden, Jonathan, your new real life superpower, we always have that debate between would you rather fly or would you rather be invisible? And most of us, because humans are creeps, take the invisibility. <laughs> but now the debate is, would you rather be invisible or have that invisible person to talk to whenever you needed to break the fourth wall? It's a it's a good debate to be had in many a bar room after folks listen to this episode. Absolutely. Yeah. Or wherever they're listening. Maybe they're on a drive. Maybe they're just sitting at a desk writing and drawing out little scribbles while listening to us. Who knows? Hey, you driving a Honda Civic. Make sure you're buckled up and don't get road rage. It's going to pass. All right. Now we're back in the podcast. Well, I wanted to mention some honorable cartoons that we also love that maybe not as familiar with breaking the fourth wall, uh, but the moments stand out. Uh, the The main one for me is uh, hair raising hair where Bugs Bunny actually uses this to the effect of scaring Gossamer into realizing there are people watching. Oh, I'm hidden for my bed and wear a lay down sleep me tight. Oh, help. Hey, wait a minute, Trashy, look. Did you ever have the feeling you're being watched? The eyes of strange, eerie things are upon you. Look, out there in the audience. People! He ends up <laughs> running through all of the walls <laughs> to get out of the castle. And then Bugs Bunny uh, is like, you know, he's doing a bit where he's like, exit our hero, stage left. Uh, but then a mechanical rabbit comes up and gives him a kiss on the cheek. And he's like, so she's mechanical. <laughs> and it, it's, uh. you know, a little bit of like letting us into, you know, the comedic stylings of Bugs Bunny. And I think it allows for people to enjoy it a bit more. And then the Scarlet Pumpernickel is on a level all by itself because it's got Daffy reading a script that he has written for Warner Brothers to make. And within that, we go into what it could be. <laughs> this Scarlet Pumpernickel is actually like trying to, you know, save this character. And then the villain has a monologue to the audience as Sylvester. It, it's just amazing. The Scarlet Pumpernickel by Daffy Dumas Duck. Chapter one. Once upon a time, 
Great opening, huh? Once upon a time, in merry old England, there lived a daring young highwayman known as the Scarlet Pumpernickel. The Lord High Chamberlain's men could never catch this handsome young desperado, for he was slippery as an eel and smart as a fox. The Lord High Chamberlain was simply furious. I'm uh, simply furious. But my lady Melissa was simply delighted. I'm simply delighted. Keep away from that masked man, that desperate man, that masked stinker. But one day, the Lord High Chamberlain got an idea. He would marry Melissa to the Grand Duke. That would bring the Scarlet Pumpernickel to town and... Uh, quick, a messenger. Take a letter to the Grand Duke. First, I am happy, for I am to marry the fair Melissa. Then, I am furious, because I despise the Scarlet Pumpernickel. So, if you haven't watched the Scarlet Pumpernickel in a while, highly recommend it. That is a classic Looney Tunes short, for sure. It, it's almost like our beloved Looney Tunes are in the Truman Show. Yeah. Because they start to suspect that, wait a minute, is this just all one big production that I'm trapped in? But how do you get out? How and so it, there's a little bit of Truman Burbank in there, albeit, you know, 50 years before we actually met Truman Burbank. I think Jim Carrey just liked injecting a lot of Looney Tunes into his work anyways. Uh, the Mask is a big one. Um, when I started the podcast, I actually joked and said, this is exactly what Stanley Ipkiss would do, is start a podcast about Looney Tunes. <laughs> That's exactly what he would do. And and, and he would he would always remind us why Tex Avery's better, but he would still like Looney Tunes. <laughs> Tex Avery's the king. Tex Avery actually invented Bugs Bunny. That's certainly a contentious statement on this podcast. Maybe 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 the, the best example of what is between an animated character and a live action character, the answer is Jim Carrey. Yes. That's the guy. And he can still do it. Go go watch the Sonic movies, kids. He's still got it. He's still got Sonic 2 was really, really great, actually. Yeah. On a comedic level. And um on that note, I wanted to also say this. And this is very controversial. So with all of these properties that we don't have homes for, there are only two streaming platforms that house Looney Tunes content. Jonathan, you are once again slightly off. As there are three streaming platforms that house Looney Tunes content, you left out Netflix, which currently has Space Jam, which flew to the top of the charts in the family programming as soon as it was dropped on that platform from HBO Max. But continue on with your insane thought. One is Hulu, and the other is Disney+. Plus. Hulu has Animaniacs, and the Looney Tunes have cameoed within that new reboot of Animaniacs. And don't forget about Tiny Tunes. And what's going to happen with the reboot of that? Hulu, I assume. And Disney Plus has Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Now, both of these companies are owned, or both of these platforms are owned by Disney. So could we see, Mark, I'm throwing it over to you. Could we see Disney purchase the Looney Tunes outright? I think it's it's well within the world of reason and rationale thinking to have Disney purchase Looney Tunes because it's not like they've ever necessarily been competition for Disney's other animated properties and their animated movies, even Mickey and Goofy a little bit. It always felt like 
every cartoon had its own lane. And in the way that now the, you know, family guy and the Simpsons like to mess with each other and South yeah. Park and all that back in the day, it was never like Disney. I, I never felt like as a kid, there was a rivalry between like Disney and Looney Tunes for my cartoon viewing dollar. It was, you knew what you would go to Disney for one set of things and you go to Looney Tunes for another set of things. And so much in the same way that you would go for the uh, Disney for some entertainment and then you would go to the Simpsons for different entertainment and now the Simpsons is on Disney plus so if we can get the Simpsons there it would only make sense that Looney Tunes can also take its rightful perch amongst the the cartoon greats of everybody's childhood it's not out of the realm of possibility and this is also where I was thinking of Hanna-Barbera going along with them so that way it's all housed under the same mouse house unfortunately although they might want to change that to like a mouse rabbit kind of thing but <laughs> i i think that it is a smart move for them to have a sanctuary if you will of a house to be under because the content is already there because people are already familiar with seeing these faces on the platform i think it would make sense on a monetary value to get them away from HBO Max or WB or Discovery or whoever is pulling the strings right now. But just so we're clear, I would like Warner Brothers to return to the once former glory they were three weeks ago. That way they can like sort it out, but the characters and the projects that are happening within these entities don't suffer and the creators actually have a place to go for their content. I think that would be a safe bet because you know, you don't see Hulu or Disney taking, you know, any strikes against their creators right now. And you may be even smarter than you look. Your genius knows no bounds because in the same way that Disney Plus has that stinger that they put at the beginning of every Star Wars uh, vehicle where it's just the helmets flashing briefly, yeah. you would have your idea of it would be Mickey Mouse's silhouette, but then bunny ears would go up after. That is now it has to happen. <laughs> That's too good. And you should get some sort of royalty every time somebody (laughs) clicks on Looney Tunes. That would be incredible. (laughs) I just have the ideas. I don't have any power to actually make it happen until I do. And then I will make it happen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mark, thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people find you online? You can find me across social media, breaking the fourth wall regularly at Mark Ellis Live. And I have some stand up dates you can get tickets for. Uh, I'll be traveling across the country at MarkEllis.live. And it all leads up to my uh, second hour special that I'm taping December 3rd in Los Angeles at the Dynasty Typewriter Historic Hayworth Theater. So you can get tickets for that and all my other tour dates at MarkEllis.live. Awesome. I'll take it from here, Jonathan. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at This Means Podcast or over at Twitter at OFC This Means Pod or on Facebook at This Means Podcast. Thank you so much. You're quite welcome. And as always, that's not all, folks. And a big thank you to the driver in the right-hand lane that just got out of the freeway. Man, wasn't this podcast helpful for you to get through it? I think so. And I'm not even driving. And I also want to thank the planes for, you know, not flying through the closet space. That was really considerate. All right, team, who's ready for tacos? All right. Let's get this picture started.